Brazos Valley. It is Tuesday, January the 31st, the last day of January. I can't believe it. And this is Red Sea Roundup. I am your host for today, Pam Marvin. Our producer today is Dennis. But before we get started, let us pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work, too, may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me, then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, welcome Brazos Valley, everybody in Bryan College Station in the Waco area. It's so exciting now that we have listeners on uh, both sides of the Brazos. Pretty cool. So if you're listening in the Waco area and you would like to call in and tell us some activities that are going on in in your area, um, please give us a call at 855-683-7332. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to be visiting with Trent Horn. He's an apologist that's known throughout the nation for sure. So I'm looking forward to speaking with Trent upon his, about his book, Hard Sayings. So uh, stay tuned for that and a little bit later on in our program. But for now, I want to uh, say good morning to Dennis Good morning, Pam. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm kind of catching my spot. He's working. He's producing. and I'm balancing I'm, sound. Yeah, he's great. So how are you? Doing pretty well. We're very excited about all the things that are coming up here in, in the Central Texas area and Brazos Valley and lots of good fundraisers for great organizations and just wonderful things are coming up. So true. But, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't make a comment or two about how awesome the family retreat was, Becoming a Holy Family. That It was very nice. Very nice. We spoke about that some uh, just after the retreat this last weekend and had some really good responses. I I even read one on the air uh, from some folks and and others that had stated this hit them at the perfect time. So I think that's got a a lot of good momentum to move forward in the near future. In the future for next year. Absolutely. I mean, I just, I have to kind of share my own experience because I believe that this will only get uh, improved upon time. I thought it was really great just out of the gate first time, but uh, I think as it goes on, it will really touch the hearts of a lot of families is what is at the heart of the Red Sea Apostolate here at KEDC. It is. And and we, we grew up out of an apostolate that was there already with family education, and the radio became a part of that. And so it's always been in our mindset not to be just a radio station, but mm-hmm. something that can help bring all the churches of our listening areas together and, and help them to work together for a specific cause and and so sometimes there's parish boundary lines and, you know, people at this church don't want to go to that church because they, you know. Well, you know, I found that here um, in the Bryan College Station area specifically that we know no borders. <laughs> I know that's the case for me. Yeah. You know, I move around between the churches so, so mm-hmm. fluidly and we are um, such a great, vibrant Catholic community that, you know, we don't, you know, sometimes I even have to ask people, well, what parish do you belong to? Because I don't even know, right? Right, right. Because you see people from all parishes at, at all the other parishes. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that is very much the same in the central Texas area. It uh, They're a bit, bit more spread out there um, between west all the way down toward Temple. They have mm-hmm. quite a few churches that are spread 
so they might may not experience that as much, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, for sure, our churches here are very close together, and, and people do go from one church to the yeah. next. And, well, I have to say that my favorite part was of the Holy Family Retreat was um, toward the end when we sat down, uh, my husband and I and my two girls that are still living in the home, to just talk about being a family and um, respecting one another and loving one another and how we can support one another. And uh, that was the highlight of my kids and, and mine too, for that matter. It was just such a an outpouring of really love. And, and I think as the apostolate, um, there's nothing better that we can do than to really reinforce families, to love families, to support families, uh, young families, grandparent-type families, everything like that. So uh, thank you, Dennis. Just um, thank you, Thaddeus. Thank you, Terry and Judy and Katka and everybody on that team that really, really put it together. You know, the breakout sessions on praying as a family, on service as a family, just really touched a, a little empty spot uh, in my heart about um, how to move forward as a family. I think we've had so much uh, for men, for women, for the kids, but this was really bringing it all together. And that was really beautiful. So for our listeners, if you didn't have an opportunity to participate this year, stay tuned because it'll be back next year and better than ever. Well, I would like to take a second, too, to talk about some event that I am going to this weekend. As most of our listeners know that my kids do go to St. Joseph Catholic School, and this weekend is their Spling Bling, which is a major fundraiser for the church excuse me, for the school, for St. Joseph's School. And it is such a great event. Speaking of supporting families, we all come together that night and do the different types of fundraising events, have a beautiful meal, and there's the auction and, and things of that nature that help to support Catholic schools. And um, I just, if you haven't yet purchased tickets and you would really like to, just call the school office over there at St. Joseph Catholic School and get in on a piece of the fun. There's dancing, and they got a great band, and it's just a great event to attend. So, and I, I know that uh, Waco has Riker Catholic High School and St. Louis Catholic High School. West has St. Mary's. And so, if any of you have some events that you want to tell us about, uh, either on the air or if you want to uh, email us, go to our website at redsearadio.org to contact us from there. But if you want to call us and tell us right now on the air what's going on there in Central Texas, 85 Love Red Sea, write that down, 85. L-O-V-E-R-E-D, then the letter C, 855-683-7332. For sure, give us a call from the Central Texas area. We would love to talk to you about what's going on there. Absolutely. And speaking of Waco, Dennis, I know that uh, our coffers are a little bit, you know, hurting. They're a yeah, little bit yeah, low. Yeah. Well, we, we're uh, experiencing the growing pains. And so with that, our, our budget is, is stretched a bit. And so those of you that are listening in Waco who haven't had an opportunity, and I, when I say Waco, I mean all of Central Texas that are our listeners there. Uh, if you haven't had an opportunity to give or if you've given once and, and have the ability to give maybe on a monthly basis, please go to our website at redcradio.org forward slash donate. We do need your money now because uh, once you buy a station, you're you're committed. That's you know? right. And, and I will admit, it was a half-million-dollar station. That sounds like a lot, but I will tell you, that was a, an incredible bargain. We had a lot of g- very generous individuals to step up to be our foundational donors. But we're looking for those that are our monthly givers, those that are listening audience there that can give on either a one-time or a regular basis to help with our 
finance is there because we're trying to get up and established, get out to the churches to let let them know we're there. We hired an incredible station director named Stephanie Lee. Mm, She's amazing. She is amazing. She's from the West area. uh, But if you haven't uh, met her, we hope that you will be meeting her soon. We have a a 33-day consecration scheduled coming up for that station as well as a station blessing, a, a blessing of the tower site that will be coming um, in the next couple of months. And so mm-hmm. stay tuned for that. We've heard lots of great things from people that have been listening in the Central Texas area and love this station. So we ask you, if you love it, help us to keep it on the air because our budget is it's a significant budget to pay off that debt and for our operating expenses. If you have a business that you would like to underwrite our our, our uh our uh, operating costs and our expansion effort and our debt reduction, please contact us at redcradio.org. Uh, if you want to email Stephanie at redc, red, the letter C, radio.org, she can get you hooked up with anything there. So spread the word, let everyone know that we're on the air for those that don't know yet, uh, and, and help donate because we are listener funded. We do not take money from the diocese. We do not run commercials. We can run some underwriting which is very limited uh, in, in scope of what we can do, but we don't operate on like a reg- regular commercial station does. And so we rely on our listeners and the donors um, that are, are in that area. Along those same lines, Dennis, you know, as I'm sitting here listening to you, um, it really reminds me that if, if you're a listener who has always had that deep desire to spread the gospel and the truths of the Catholic Church— and you have that desire in your heart, and you're saying, my station in life and where I am just really does not allow that, the one way you can do that is to contribute your financial support to Red Sea Radio, because Red Sea does this exactly this. So you are an apostle. You are reaching people for Christ when you contribute to Red Sea Radio, Um, especially we're reaching out to those of you in the Waco area. Be apostles, contribute so that we can do more of this work to get the gospel and, and the truths of the church in our communities. And it, it works. It does work, folks. And we I just got word this past week, as a matter of fact, of an entire family that is converted to the Catholic faith locally. Oh, my word. Because of what they first started hearing in, on Red Praise Sea Catholic Jesus. Radio. They went to RCIA, and they are working their way into the Catholic Church. One, wow. one The daughter has converted, and the parents are waiting for some things that they can settle and they are in the process as well. So thanks be to God for, for the way that God moves through these radio stations. And so it, it does work. Vocations come, lives are saved. It, you know, and it's not my doing, it's not Pam's doing, it's the Lord's work. So let's, Absolutely. let's have you be a part of it. So. You, know, you know, I have this saying that I love to say, Dennis, it's like when you invite the Holy Spirit to a party, he usually shows up. So <laughs> we're inviting him through the party and, and maybe he'll inspire your heart to contribute so we can keep this party going. Amen. Amen. So what's going on next? Well, I actually, here in just a few minutes, I think we're going to talk to Jess Fields, who's going to give us a little update on what oh, okay. he's up to lately. But while we're waiting for him to get a minute... Uh, I'm going to talk about an event that's going on on February 11th over at St. Joseph's Catholic Church, and it's called the Living Well Conference. And that's a really neat thing. If you want to know um, a lot more detail about that, just go to the Catholic St. Joseph Catholic Church website, and it's the Living Well Conference on February the 11th. It is a Saturday, and it is like a combination of 
the whole body, mind, spirit. And from what I've heard, because I've had friends that attended this conference before, it is really dynamic and just has a lot of really good things to say and speak to our hearts as Christians, as Catholics in general. As a matter of fact, Texas A&M had brought them in to, to do the Living Well Conference because we want to be well, folks, and be our best, be our best for Christ. So if you're able to, please uh, sign up for that. You can go right to their website and um, log in and pay for it and come. I'm hoping to join you there. We'll see if the good Lord blesses uh, time and, and my and my family's schedule for us to be able to do that. Oh, my goodness. So here's my dear friend, Jess Fields. He and I just a real simpatico on the whole political Christian aspect. And I'm going to... Good morning, at- Jess. Good morning. Hey, good morning, guys. How are y'all doing? We're awesome. I'm so glad you can join us today. Yeah, well, I mean, tell you, there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on. So, uh, rapid fire. What do you want to get to? My goodness, I don't know. What's what's on your heart, Jess? I'm 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 deferring to you. You tell me. What do you think our listeners in the whole Brazos Valley? You know, we expanded into Waco area too. So yep. this is getting bigger. So you tell me what's on your heart that you want the people to know. Okay, I think the biggest thing by far is the Supreme Court uh, nomination that's coming up. That is, uh, without a doubt, um, the biggest uh, issue today. The President Trump is expected to announce his Supreme Court pick sometime today. Um, we don't know exactly when because a lot of times the media, you know, will leak it first. So we're not really sure when that's going to come out. It hasn't come out yet. Uh, there are a couple of finalists. Um, the top finalist seems to be a guy named Neil Gorsuch. He is a judge on the appeals court based out of Denver, Colorado. And the second guy is uh, a guy named Thomas Hardiman, and he's a judge on the appeals court based in Philadelphia. Now, there's two really important things to know about these guys. First of all, they're both young. Gorsuch is 49. Hardiman is 51. Now, you think about that, and you say, well, that's not that young. But when then you consider that, you know, Sonia Sotomayor and uh, the uh, uh, Kagan and, and the Obama appointees were all in their 50s and early 60s uh, range, that really kind of tells you the kind of justices that the left has been trying to put on the Supreme mm, Court. So when yeah. you think about the younger judges – you know, the, the lifespan of these folks on the court, generally they retire or uh, pass on uh, by the time they're about 80, right? Uh, it, generally they retire by 80 if they're, if they're not, um, uh, if they're still alive at that time. Um, so you're talking about a 30-year judge here with, with either of these guys, which is really, really important. And the second uh, factor is they're both known as pro-life uh, judges. Um, now, that is not a confirmed thing. It's impossible to really know how somebody's going to rule. Um, I, I would warn listeners that uh, once upon a time, there was a judge out of New Hampshire named David Souter, who was yes. appointed by um, George H.W. Bush. And Souter was seen as a uh, pretty you know, reasonable uh, maybe even conservative judge. Souter ended up being one of the most liberal justices in recent Supreme Court history, appointed by the elder George H.W. Uh, George Bush. So, you know, you can't always be totally sure, but with both of these guys who have been on Trump's list from the very beginning when he first announced his Supreme Court picks back in the fall, 
Um, they've been vetted over and over again by a variety of conservative media sources. A National Review has written about them, um, and maybe I can send you a link to that, and you can put that somewhere uh, uh, on the site or in the show notes or something. But um, that anyway, I, I think we're pretty safe with these guys. So that's pretty exciting. And, and so you can say for, I think, at least 20, 25 years, there will be at least one more pro-life justice on the court. So we have to see who that's going to be, and that will be sometime today that the president announces that. That's right. Yeah, I saw he tweeted out what um, 8 p.m. I guess Central or 8 p.m. No, 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 8 p.m. Eastern. He was going to tweet that out. I guess. So what? What do you make of all this like craziness with, you know, the media going on? I mean, I tell you, that's really troubling my heart a little bit because I'm like, what? It's like everything's just exploded, and you're like, what's going on here? Can you like kind of frame that a little bit for our listeners? Yeah, it's funny. My wife and I were talking about that because she was talking about how all of the uh, Hollywood events, the actors seem more crazy than usual. Um, And, uh, you know, I think that there's some truth that the bubble that everybody um, has lived in, uh, in the, um, uh, if I may say, secularist media, um, has kind of been popped. They didn't expect that there were all these people out there that were really that upset with the status quo. Yes, they yes. weren't, you know, expecting that there were all these people that were mad about what was going on in Washington and in Hollywood and uh, so on and so forth. And and I think they're just shocked. I think they're in a constant state of shock. And uh, so all objectivity at this point has really gone out the window. Um, and I think that what we are left with, frankly, uh, is a situation where. You know, if you believe in uh, traditional values, as we do, if you believe that, uh, you know, you want to take care of your family first, if you want to watch, you know, only certain things on television, and if you want to be careful about what you watch on television, if you want to be guarding, you know, what your kids see on the Internet, that is completely opposed to the secularist worldview. And... Mm -hmm. So I would suggest that they're just in a constant state of shock, uh, Pam. And and the other thing, um, you know, very, very frankly, uh, is that a lot of the things that are happening now uh, are things that seem to be chipping away at what they would consider their biggest wins. I mean, Mm -hmm. the pro-life Supreme Court justice is exactly that. I mean, for, you know, 40 years, you know, no one had to worry about whether or not abortion was going to go away. And now there's real discussion that, well, maybe, you know, if you get a certain balance on the court, Roe v. v. Wade would be overturned. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about the way that the March for Life was covered. You had a huge crowd at the March for Life this last Friday. But nobody covered the March for Life on television. Well, it was better than it's ever been. But, yeah, I find that, you know, for me, I'm getting most of my news now from social media. I mean, I've got lots of different outlets that I'm following to kind of get a full range of ideas of what's going on. We've got about 30 seconds left, Jess. Um, So what do you think about that part, the social media? Is that how you're getting a lot of yours? Would you recommend? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I I get most of my news from uh, from folks that I trust, um, who I follow on social media, as well as uh, sites that you know provide great content that aren't uh, that are kind of independent. I mean, one of them is Drudge Report. You know, I, I check Drudge Report regularly. Um, I still read the paper. I still you know watch a little bit of cable news, but um, but I, I think we just have to be you know kind of our own filters, and we have to make right, sure right. that we're watching 
watching carefully and, and objectively because truthfully what we see in the mainstream right. media is not reflecting our values. Exactly. Well, well Jess, thank you so much. Can you come back next third Tuesday? Mark it on your calendar. We, we'll talk again I'll next third Tuesday. My, I'll mark it on Excellent. my calendar. Excellent. Thanks for joining us. And folks, if you're listening, we're going to go to a break and we'll be right back with Trent Horn. Welcome back, Brazos Valley. You are listening to Red Sea Roundup. This is Pam Marvin, your host for the day, and I am thrilled to be introducing my guest. We'll be talking with Trent Horn, who is an apologist and speaker for Catholic Answers, an apostolate that is dedicated to explaining and defending the Catholic faith. He specializes in teaching Catholics how to graciously defend their faith with sound arguments and persuasive communication techniques. Trent earned his graduate degree in theology from Franciscan University of Steubenville and is currently pursuing a graduate degree in philosophy from Holy Apostles College. He's a regular guest on the radio program Catholic Answers Live and Sidebar. That's where I've become a big fan. Thank you. And who speaks across the country on issues related to the Catholic faith and the author of dozens of articles, booklets, and books about apologetics apologetics. He currently lives with his wife and son in San Diego. So welcome, Trent Horn. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm thrilled to have you on the show today. Like I said, I'm definitely a fan of your work. I'm a big Catholic Answers listener, and I'm thrilled to get to talk to you. Uh, As I was talking to you right before we came on the air, um, one of the reasons I want to hear more about your kind of your little bio and how you got into what you've done is that um, we actually broadcast out of the Texas A&M Catholic Center, and there are so many Aggies here that have asked the question, how do you become an apologist? That is that is one we get all the time. So our listening audience would probably really love to, to know. And so I'd like to hear the progression. I mean, you are gifted in this. I think this is what God has called you to, and you've said yes to him. So can you can you kind of start at the beginning of how you got into apologetics? Sure. Well, I think uh, like many apologists, I know this is something that people notice a lot. Uh, For those who are apologists, those who defend the Catholic faith, they tend to be converts to the Catholic faith. Not all of them. Patrick Madrid is not, but my colleagues, Tim Staples, Jimmy Aiken, myself, uh, many others, we are converts. And I think that is a common motif uh, because as a convert to the Catholic faith, now I, I converted at the end of high school, you have to confront, you have objections and questions that you want answered. And so before you sign on to becoming Catholic, you look at the objections you have, as well as the objections other people have raised against this faith you are thinking about joining, and you want to see if they can be answered. And only once it's answered to your satisfaction, at least to, to a morally certain degree, then you say, yes, this is where, where God is calling me, and you... Um, you know, make that, you know, finalize that decision. So that's where it started for me was, okay, I'm converting, I'm researching this. And then after I became Catholic, I enjoyed teaching others uh, what I had learned in my conversion process and growing more in my faith and in my ability to defend it. And so that's really where it it started. And then through 
college and my later years as a pro-life missionary, I really developed a passion for teaching others how to defend the faith. Well, you, you know, we have a pro-life uh, claim to fame here in the Brazos Valley. Do you know what it is? I'm going to quiz you. In the Brian conversation yes, uh, area. Uh, obviously, uh, 40 Days for Life yeah. and uh, everything else. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We knew them when, right? <laughs> the carnies, the right, rights, exactly. and they were just, you know, folks like us. So that's really cool. So I'm hoping that we touch some hearts today that's listening who will be inspired. Because, you know, another thing, Trent, that, uh, that I really think the Holy Spirit is calling a lot of people to is that the Holy Spirit wants to really answer the greatest desires, the holy desires of our hearts. And if there's someone out here that wants to be an apologist, um, this didn't happen overnight. I mean, you, you were courageous. I mean, you went off to Franciscan. You got your theology degree. Were you by this time starting to write papers or talk even? Well, I was doing uh, small talks uh, locally in, in my, my hometown of Phoenix here and there. Uh, be you know to do apologetics. Uh, actually, my studies at the Franciscan University of Steubenville were through distance learning. So I was during that time stationed in Kansas, and I would travel the country doing pro-life missionary work. And on nights and weekends, I would read theology, write papers, and I would do that through distance learning with the university. And then one summer, I think in 2010. Uh, I went there, you know, for six weeks to, to finish up my degree, but I wasn't on campus. And so I think for anyone who wants to, to become an apologist, uh, I think formal education is very important, uh, you know, pursuing degrees in theology and philosophy. But uh, honestly, most of the apologists I know, there is no school that teaches people how to defend the faith. Every apologist I know has had to learn this through independent study. So if you mm-hmm. want to be a defender of the faith, I would just recommend read, you know, you have to read a lot and reading the basic documents like the catechism, the Bible over and over, and then just other books in an independent study plan uh, to learn how, you know, you just have to amass knowledge. So it'd be great. I hope one day we can create a school of apologetics, but for now you kind of have to make it up as you go. Right, right. But the other part of that is you were very bold. I mean, you put yourself out there, you took risks. You know, you, you put all kind of uh, pride aside <laughs> um, to be able to put yourself out there. So so what was one of the, the first major things you did? Was it uh, writing something? Was it speaking? When did things really start to take off for you? Well, I, I think what began in my field of apologetics just personally was when I did this pro-life mission work with the organization Justice for All. Mm-hmm. I would travel to university mm-hmm. campuses I would engage people in one-on-one dialogue as well as um, open microphone sessions about pro-life and issues related to abortion with, you know, debating students, hostile crowds on these university campuses. And so that puts you in the the heat of the action there. And I would talk about pro-life, but also with students talk about religion and the Catholic Church. And so that started there. And and as this was happening, I also felt, you know, I'd really love to create a, a web resource or something to help people get their questions about the faith answered. So I would study a lot of this in my own personal time as well. And so I was creating these materials that I thought would be helpful for people. And then uh, in, let's see, it would be probably in 2012. Yeah, that's right. It'd be the summer of 2012. I took a group of students on a kind of a mission trip to San Diego to a marriage conference on how to defend marriage. And when I was there, I received a phone call 
a friend was saying Catholic Answers was looking to hire a new apologist. So their office is there. And I went in and told them about myself and they were willing to take a chance on me. They saw what I had created, what I had done in my spare time and saw a lot of merit in that. So, uh, Excellent. you know, if you want to do apologetics, I would recommend just doing it on the side as much as you can. And, you know, speaking where you can, even if it's small engagements, uh, then the more you do, the more others will take notice of your work and even us Catholic Answers may take notice. Okay. And tell people how, I mean, you have some resources online right now. Let's, let's tell our listeners about that, that you have available for, for apologetics. Sure. Uh, well, I, obviously I would recommend our resources at catholic.com, our articles and other things like that. Uh, what I've contributed, so when I was brought on board to Catholic Answers, I was in the process of writing my very first book, Answering Atheism. So the materials that I've created for people that you can find online at uh, online retailers or at a Catholic bookstore uh, would be things like my books uh, and booklets. I've written about 10 uh, little booklets called 20 Answers Booklets on things like the Bible, Jesus, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, on online bookselling sites, you can find my three books, uh, Answering Atheism, Persuasive Pro-Life, and my latest book, Hard Sayings, A Catholic Approach to Answering Bible Difficulties. Uh, so some of that can be found at TrentHorn.com, my personal website. But if your listeners want to be equipped to defend the Catholic faith, I would recommend that they visit uh, Catholic.com, our, our main website. Excellent. Well, let us talk about hard sayings. How did how did the the idea um, be born for you writing this book? And and start to tell me a little more about the book now. Sure. Well, hard sayings developed uh, when I was speaking with the editor at Catholic Answers, uh, the editor director of our press, Catholic Answers Press, who we publish a series of books each year, mostly focused on apologetics and defending the faith. And we had, and he had said, well, there is a, a hole in this area in the Catholic literary market that no one has written really a comprehensive book uh, answering Bible difficulties. You know, what about tough passages in Scripture? There are many books like this from Protestant perspectives, but there are there weren't any at that really? time from a Catholic perspective. And so he had suggested, well, should I get so and so or so and so to write this? And I said, no, I'll write it. <laughs> so I, I thought, well, this this will. Uh, you know, I thought, well, I, I've got some experience in this area. I, I studied a lot of, you know, Bible stuff during my conversion, and it's a subject that I thought would be really fascinating and uh, important to create a, a long. I also wanted to make sure that the book uh, would be good. <laughs> I don't want to toot my own horn or anything, uh, no pun intended. Uh, but I wanted <laughs> to make sure that this book uh, would not be just a data dump. It would not just be a boring encyclopedia of references, because I think the topic is very important to equip people. So I wanted to make sure I could have my hands on it to write a, a large treatment of difficulties in scripture, but uh, making it readable, making it accessible, uh, both for lay people as well as for scholars who would pick up the book. And uh, Catholic biblical scholars have praise the book that I've written, that even though it's accessible to laymen, it, it still goes into the nitty-gritty of the academic issues involved in some of these subjects. Yeah, and reading some of the reviews of the book, one of the most flattering comments I, I saw was that 
this book belongs next to your Bible and your catechism as a reference, that it's just that solid and, and such a great reference tool. And it was, it was even said that, you know, that's a good thing to do. You don't have to read it front to back. You can, you know, the things that are, are most on your heart that you're having difficulties with, uh, look that up, you know. And I thought that was really a nice compliment for the book. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, yes, no, absolutely, yeah. Well, one of the hard sayings that, that one of the things that's contradictory, so I'm going to play it on you to see how it works. One thing that's gone, you know, the discussion between my husband and I that, that still is like, well, I don't get this, and that is our Old Testament had said, you know, an eye for an eye, right? That's the staunch, you know, hard. But then Jesus says, turn the other cheek. And so you can see, I'm sure you, you've heard this one before, but that's the main one that really stands out to me. So can you give us a little time, a little insight into this one? Yes. And I think the importance here is to understand that God's revelation is progressive for his people where they are at. Sometimes we mistakenly think that God will issue commands or his revelation uh, is always going to be the same to all people in all times. And that's simply not the case. Uh, For example, the Israelites uh, were not expected to worship the Son of God uh, because the Son had not been revealed to them. Uh, And in fact, uh, revealing the Trinity at that time may have been difficult for people who were steeped in polytheism, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. in cultures that worshipped many gods. And so... God revealed himself as the one true God, and later the fullness of God as Trinity would be revealed in the New Testament. There are, of course, uh, you know, hints at this and foreshadowings of it in the Old Testament, but it's in the New. So just as there's theological progress in Revelation or there's progressive theology revealed to God's people, uh, we also see progressive revelation in the form of some... Uh, ethical commands. Now, not all of them. For example, thou shalt not kill is thou shalt not kill. I mean, thou shalt not commit adultery. That's that's the same everywhere. But for example, the question of meeting out punishment, that in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, that that law was actually meant to restrict uh, harsh retaliation, that if somebody uh, knocked out your eye, you know, mm. your clan could just go over and kill somebody in their family. That, that would be an imbalance. It's like, no, 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 no. If he, you know, harms, you know, knocks out your eye, you only get to knock out his. If, you know, if, if someone kills a member of your family, you don't get to wipe out their entire clan or tribe. Only the killer is held responsible. So these pastors are meant to restrict in an ancient uh, biblical context, ancient Mesopotamian context, uh, providing a sense of, of justice there to rein in uh, ethical abuses, moral abuses, things like this. Then God's people will be led more and more to the ideal of how one should love our neighbor, even love our enemies uh, in the person of Christ who's revealed, that people are you know, slowly, progressively led towards this, as Pope Benedict XVI says, that, he, that God leads them this way in spite of their hard hearts. That that's in his post, uh, his Apostolic Exhortation Verbum Domini. So progressive revelation, I think, is the key to understand these differences between the Old and the New Testament. That is absolutely interesting. So there's a lot of stuff like this in the book, right? Kind of explains yes. this. And... Uh, in the book, I, I tackle difficulties in Scripture, three kinds. Uh, external ones, where the Bible appears to contradict science or history, Internal ones, like the one you and I just just discussed, where the Bible seems to contradict itself, 
and moral difficulties where it seems that the Bible endorses uh, immoral or, or wicked behavior. Can you give us an example of that one? Of a moral behavior? Sure. Right. I think a common example would be people will read in both the Old and the New Testament laws that govern and regulate slavery. And in the modern world, of course, uh, slavery still exists, but it's not uh, a major backbone of economy and society as it was 150 years ago. So thankfully, in our modern age, economies have changed and uh, also, we, we revolt against the idea of slaves or people being treated merely as property. We, you say, you know, well, slavery is just wrong. So then when we read in the Bible, when St. Paul says slaves should be obedient to their masters, or the Old Testament describes uh, how masters should treat their slaves, people revolt and say, but slavery is wrong. Why is there slavery in the Bible? Mm. The problem here is that the slavery that's described in the Bible is almost always not the same as so-called chat, you know, it's, well, it was not chattel slavery. Uh, it, it was not, well, a slave is just an object you can do whatever you want with, and you can enslave them based on their race. Uh, that, that, that was American antebellum slavery. In the Old and New Testaments, what you frequently see is debt slavery, that in the ancient world, economies were very different. And if you fell into debt, the only collateral you had to secure the debt, to, to secure repayment, was yourself. So you'd have to pledge your, your service, your labor to someone for a set period of time. And in the Old Testament, uh, to prevent abuses, slaves had to be freed every seven years. This is similar to how we're allowed to declare bankruptcy every uh, six or seven years. Mm. So when we read in the Old Testament and the New Testament, slavery was, uh, you know, slavery was a part of the economy, an indispensable part of the economy in the same way that credit or borrowing is an indispensable part of our economy today. Uh, but the biblical authors worked very hard to restrict abuses in slavery. And when you read in the Old and New Testament, slaves are given uh, freedoms and treatments not seen anywhere else in the ancient world. Uh, you couldn't, if you uh, injured a slave in the Old Testament, you had to set them free. You could not kidnap someone and make them a slave. Uh, you had to, you know, you, slaves could own property, they could marry people. And in the New Testament, Paul talks about how masters should be kind to their slaves, because both of them have uh, a master in heaven who's, who's God, mm -hmm. that we are truly slaves to God. And Paul uses that refrain over and over again in Scripture. A lot of times it's translated servant, but actually the literal word Paul is saying is not servant of Christ, we are slaves of Christ. So the idea is there may be masters and slaves in this world, but really take heart, you and him, you're both slaves to the same master, so treat each other accordingly. And I, and I spend two chapters going into this in detail, but I think it's important to clear up these issues that many people can look at with too simple a focus. Mm -hmm. No, that I've really learned a lot from that That just what you were saying about the debted slavery and not, you called it chattel? How do you spell that? Chattel. Chattel, uh, so okay. Chattel, C-H-A-T-T-E-L, is the idea of a slave uh, not being a person, that you mm. could beat a slave, even kill a slave. You could treat a slave the same way you might treat an ox or a cow. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're just property. Uh, they, they have no basic rights. Uh, the Bible does not uh, endorse chattel slavery. Debt slavery, and this is very common even in uh, the 18th century, 19th century in America, uh, one third to one half of all immigrants who came to the United States 
were essentially they were indentured servants. Uh, I guess it'd be more in the, the 18th, 17th centuries. So in order to pay their way to the new world, they had no money as poor immigrants. So they would sell their labor that once they got here, they were forced to work for someone to repay the cost of their of their passage to the new world. Uh, so th- there are kinds of, of slavery, you know, where, where we say, OK, this is different. This is about regulating economies. But the Bible is very clear that all people, as Galatians 3.28 says, there's neither male nor female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. These distinctions are uh, not the male or female, but Jew, Gentile, slave, free. That is a social distinction that in Christ, we are all one in Christ Jesus. And so that, that's the key point to take away from Scripture, that slavery may be a social condition, uh, but it's not a part of the, the human condition. Wow. That's great. Uh, do you have another example that you'd like to talk about you feel like comes up a lot? I mean, you're on the radio a lot. And, um, yeah, people... I, I think another example, uh, you mean from the book as a whole? Yes. Yes. Sure. Uh, I think another one, so we've talked about um, moral difficulties in Scripture and internal difficulties. Uh, external difficulties, the most common one there would be the claim that the Bible contradicts science. Uh, people will read oh, yeah. the book of Genesis, or at least just the first few chapters of it, and will say, oh, well, this says that the, God, the world was created in six days and nothing evolved, but I went to biology class and it says the universe is billions of years old and all life evolved from a common ancestor. Therefore, the Bible is wrong. And in the book, what I show is that, well, the Bible is speaking truth to us, but its genre is not of a scientific textbook, uh, that the first chapters of the book of Genesis are what you might call epic poetry. They are communicating truths, uh, but not necessarily in a literal way. And this is obvious in that in Genesis 1, uh, the light is created on day one, but the sun, the thing that makes the light, is created on day four. This is something even people in the time of St. Augustine, who were his critics, pointed out. Uh, this is not a new objection. And the reply is, well, the author is writing things not necessarily in a chronological order. Uh, so if that's the case, he's not describing things literally. They're true, but non-literal. For example, when a, a father describes to his child where babies come from, he might say, well, the daddy gives the mommy a seed and it grows in the mommy and that's a baby. I mean, that's true, but, but you shouldn't take it literally or else you'll fall into error. And that's the same with reading the creation of the world. It's not a scientific account. Uh, it is an anthropological account. It is a, a theological account of the creation. And so when we look at it that way, there's no contradiction from what we learn about how the world evolved from a, a scientific perspective. You know, actually, this came up in a, a personal conversation. I have a, a buddy that we, you know, walk and exercise with, and she's like, Pam, who wrote the Old Testament? I'm like, I don't know. Like, who wrote Genesis? And where was the origins of that? I mean, it's our Judeo-Christian. I mean, I, I got the New Testament down, but I'm like, you know, I, I'm not really sure. I couldn't answer the question. Yeah, this is a bit separate. It's an issue that may, I might address in a future book uh, when it comes about who, who wrote the Bible and where did the Bible come from? Uh, the, the question of the Old Testament, now the Old Testament was written over a much longer span of time than the New Testament. Uh, the events in the New Testament, we, that authorship there really ranges only from the year uh, 
you know, around the mid 50s AD to, you know, maybe like the late 90s, early second century, probably just the late 90s. Uh, so over a period, of just a few decades, the Old Testament, however, its authorship is spanned over centuries. Uh, and so there'd be multiple different authors. Uh, so the Genesis, for example, uh, we would say, well, it, you know, it wasn't Adam didn't just sit down in the garden and start writing down everything that was happening, and <laughs> kept that as a book and gave it to people. Uh, what happened in the events in the Old Testament would have been collected as oral traditions that were that were retold as sacred stories. And then eventually scribes uh, would have written these down. And the traditional authorship for the first five books of the Old Testament uh, would be Moses. That's the traditional authorship. There's still some questions about whether Moses uh, actually wrote all of that, whether he he or others him compiled earlier stories and oral traditions, or there were later scribes in the Mosaic tradition that wrote this down. Uh, but eventually, much of what we read uh, in Scripture would have been compiled uh, during authors who lived during you know during the reign of. Uh, Solomon and David in the United Kingdom. And so there's there's be a period of authors over several centuries who would record and collect these and they would be kept with the Jewish people either uh, within their, you know, royal archives or kept within them personally when they, you know, they've been they've been sent into exile. Very fascinating um, subject to be sure, but mm-hmm. I think I'll have to save that for a future book. Okay. Well, my next question on that was there a um, type of a a year, you know, say with the New Testament, we had the council that came together and compiled and the, the books. Was there a moment like that with Old Testament or was it just kind of a slow um, cultural collectivity? But, you know, like what year was like the Bible came out? Or, you know, I guess it doesn't really work that way. But what can you tell me about that? Yes. Uh, well, the the Jewish people uh, for a long time had a as obviously they're receiving progressive revelation. And the scripture of the Hebrew Bible is typically divided into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Uh, and so like the law would be the Torah. Uh, so you people, if I heard that for the first five books, the books of Moses, and then the, the prophets are the historical stories, and then also Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others. And the writings are, that's the most, uh, the loosest collection there, things uh, you know, like like Job, uh, uh, other wisdom literature, other things like this. And so as Revelation progressed for the Jewish people, the, you know, these writings would be gathered together. However, there was not a fixed canon of Scripture. Uh, this is quite evident in the first century, even in Jesus' time, because you had, for example, the Sadducees, uh, the, the priestly class, the descendants of Zadok, they only held as inspired the, the, the law, so the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses or the Torah. They denied later writings of the prophets, which caused them to deny things like the resurrection of the body. And that's where they and Jesus had that debate about the woman who's married seven times. Uh, who is she married to? Interestingly enough, that story they cite, they say, well, Jesus, this woman was married seven times. Who is she going to be married to in the resurrection? And they kind of snarked at the resurrection because they didn't believe in that and thought this story disproved it. They were actually citing from the book of Tobit, which would be part of the writings that we now call part of the Deuterocanonicals. And that, that's a different subject. I don't want to go too far afield. But so there was a, you know, there was no agreed upon canon even in the time of Jesus. It really was not until the early second century after Christ that the Jewish people formalized a canon uh, 
And they actually formalized a canon different from what in their Old Testament canon was different than what Christians accepted, because Christians believed in books like Sirach, Maccabees, things like this. And what this has led to is today that Protestants follow the canon that these second century Jews created that doesn't have books like Tobit or Maccabees, whereas Christians follow the canon of Scripture that Jesus and the—sorry, Catholics have the one that Jesus and the Apostles followed, uh, which included these deuterocanonical books. Uh, mm. And a great book on that I would recommend for your listeners is The Case for the Deuterocanon by my friend Gary Machuda. It's called The Case for the Deuterocanon. Great book on that subject. What's Gary's last name again? Machuda, M-I-C-H-U-T-A. Uh, he's an excellent apologist. And on the subject of the Old Testament canon, uh, how it was finally formed, because this is a debate that Protestants and Catholics still have, because wow. Protestants will say, you know, well, hey, why did Catholics, why did you add seven books to the Bible? When <laughs> in reality, it's the reverse. It was Protestants who subtracted seven books. Right. Uh, so I'd recommend the case for the Deuterocanon by, by Gary Machuda to uh, help people to understand this really important issue. Well, awesome. Well, you know, Trent, we have about, oh gosh, less than five minutes left um, to talk. So I want to really get to how people can purchase um, Hard Sayings and some of the other um, essays you've done. I think those would be really vital uh, today because I'd love to talk pro-life with you as well. <laughs> but uh, how yeah. can we get a hold of we your book? Have, yeah, we, we have a special right now. I don't know if it's still active, but I mean, it, it's still worthwhile to pursue. Uh, we have a discounted rate on the book, Persuasive Pro-Life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would recommend checking that out today. Uh, hopefully that discount is still there. Uh, otherwise, my books, Persuasive Pro-Life, Answering Atheism, and Hard Sayings are available at shop.catholic.com. So that's shop.catholic.com. Okay. And, you know, you can also get there uh, some of my other talks on DVD, like Making the Case for Life. People seem to have really enjoyed that presentation, uh, as well as uh, other interview series I've done with people on chastity-related issues, uh, and other great mm. books from my other friends and colleagues, uh, you know, like Tim Staples and Jimmy Aiken. Uh, they've written wonderful books on uh, defending the Catholic faith. And I would recommend to check that out. The best resource, I'll repeat again, is our website. Go to shop.catholic.com. That's excellent. So, so can I ask you, I mean, it's, it's, it's a couple of pro-life questions, too. Uh, one of the uh, biggest sure. ones that I've come up with um, in my personal family, I have, a, I love this family member with all my heart and soul. And we differ on this um, because, as you've seen, the pro-life debate with some of the people that oppose um, life, so to speak, is that, well, the mother's life is more important, therefore she has the right to choose. I mean, he, he, in his soul, he just believes that that is, you know, it's her body, and if she chooses not to give life or to have this child, that that is really her choice. Of course, you and I are like, that's not her body. That's another body, you know. So how, right. how is that yeah, developing to— child resides in your body does yeah, not mean they are a part yours. of your body. That's and right. the argument is simply, well, the mother is more important. Right. Uh, that is a callous, cruel, and terrible argument. That'd be like saying, you know what? Uh, when I'm at home feeding my child and they are just a complete mess and I can't stand it anymore— I'm allowed to leave and I'm just going to go for 24 hours just to get my head on straight and just leave them strapped in their high chair 
for 24 hours because I'm more important. Mm. Nobody would accept that kind of ludicrous argument with a born child. So true. The question is, are unborn children as human as born children? That is the central issue. And if they are, they should be treated equally. And so, so it is up true. to the defender of abortion to show they're not. And as I show in my book, Persuasive Pro-Life, uh, they, they simply can't accomplish that task because science and philosophy prove the unborn are human beings with the same basic right to life you and I possess. Amen. Speaking of that, I don't know if you were able to listen to my caller in the first little segment. I have a dear friend that um, is very uh, in tune with what's going on in our nation. He actually works for a foundation helping to restore states' rights. And he was talking about uh, the Supreme Court nominations of pro-life. You got you got a favorite one or you know what's going on? I mean, I guess he's going to announce tonight his nomination, President Trump, that is. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm not familiar with the nominations to the Supreme Court, but I do believe it's very important that any justice who's nominated will uphold the rule of law and uphold the constitutional mm-hmm. principle that all human beings have intrinsic rights given to them by their creator, rights to life and liberty, and those should not be subjugated just for the interests of other uh, human beings. And Mm -hmm. so I I certainly hope that the Supreme Court will uh, come to see that new appointments will help uh, steer the court away from its errors it's committed in in things like Roe versus Wade and other things like that. Right. Um, Jess was telling me that uh, his two top favorites are Neil Gorsuch and Thomas Hardiman, both of them pretty young. So we'll, we'll keep our our eyes open and our ears open. And speaking of doing that, it's like I have to listen. The way we're getting our news now is really changing, as you know. Um, do you have any of a favorite way that you're getting your news now these days? Uh, you know, I still try to uh, visit major news sites and read a variety of newspapers from different perspectives, you know, major papers like the New York Times or the Washington Post. Usually, I mean, online, I don't know anyone who reads a paper newspaper anymore. Uh, I also enjoy going to blogs and aggregator sites uh, from different perspectives. And I try very hard uh, when I read something that seems too good to be true or seems outlandish to say, wait a minute, let me look for more evidence uh, for this. I try to be very skeptical because there's many false, misleading or fake stories out there. I encourage your listeners uh, be skeptical, especially if it's a story you really want to be true. Exactly. Be careful because it, it may not be. <laughs> exactly. Well, well, Trent, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Uh, I hope our listeners will go to shop.catholic.com and purchase any one of your writings, but hard sayings especially. And I really appreciate the work you're doing. Hats off to you, brother. And we're going to be praying for you and your continued work. Well, thank you very much. Uh, We'll be praying for you as well. All right. Well, next time we'll catch you on the radio. Thanks, Trent. Absolutely. All right. Bye. Well, that's it for today, folks. So thank you for joining us. And I want to encourage everyone as a Catholic, please go and love your neighbor.